Welcome to After the JAG Corps, Navigating Your Career Progression, a podcast for judge advocates leaving military service. After the JAG Corps assists officers transitioning from the military law practice by learning from individuals who have successfully embarked on new careers, providing insight on rewarding professional opportunities, job search strategies, resumes, the value of your military experience, and more. Now, here is your host, Tom Welsh. Today on the podcast, we have not one, but two guests. We are talking to administrative law judges, Jennifer Payton and Megan Jackler. Megan was a former JAG and Jennifer's not, but they are both going to talk about the five W's in regards to being an administrative law judge, particularly an immigration judge. So Judge Payton, Judge Jackler, welcome to the podcast. All right. I'll start off and say thank you so much for inviting us to speak with you today. We are uh, excited to be able to speak about how to become an immigration judge. A little bit of my background, I actually come from the private bar. I was born and raised in San Diego County, and then I uh, went to Ohio for law school, ended up there maybe 15 or so years in private practice, and then applied for my first government job and got it in 2016. I began to adjudicate cases as an immigration judge here in Chicago, the best court in the nation. And then more recently, I was appointed, no offense to you, Judge Judge Jack, when you're court, but then I was appointed as Assistant Chief Immigration Judge, well, so that's ACIJ, in January of 2022. So I've been doing that a little over a year. So we have a busy docket, as does Judge Jackler, but we're excited to take some time and just explain to you the who what, where, why, and we ran out of W, so we went to how do I apply? So <laughs> four W's and one H. <laughs> so Judge Jackler, share about yourself now. Thanks, Judge Peyton. So I'm Megan Jackler. I'm the Assistant Chief Immigration Judge in New Orleans, which I also think is one of the best courts in the nation, uh, not only for the people and the workload, but also the food, and certainly very challenging issues down here. But I, one thing I want to stress is that as a former Navy JAG, I find that that job prepared me extremely well, and it was an extremely easy transition into this fascinating area of practice. I spent 12 years on active duty in exotic places like Yokosuka, Japan, Norfolk, Virginia, not once but twice, and I asked to go there again, and Gulfport, Mississippi, Pearl Harbor, Hawaii. And I had the pleasure of serving on both sides of the aisle as well as an SJA for a base, so I got a very broad view of practice and specifically litigation. I'll be honest, I was not the best litigator in the Navy, but I knew how to put the case together and I knew how to conduct myself in court. And those skills helped me very much for this job. And I think any JAGs applying, they would suit them uh, very well for that this job as well. Megan, before we go, I always ask people their own stories. So what was the uh, reason or motivation behind transitioning out of the JAG Corps into something else? So I have a lot of different reasons, but the primary one was stability. My husband is a civilian. He had never been in the military and his medical practice required him to start over from the ground up every place we moved. And finally, we both hit 40 and said, we can't keep doing this anymore. We have a young family. We have a sweet little dog. And it was just too much to uproot to everywhere. So he got a great job offer down here in New Orleans with his former company. And then I saw this fabulous job ad on USA Jobs, similar to what might be out there soon for assistant chief immigration job. I applied and here I am. So to both of you, and I'll let you guys decide who takes the opening salvo. 
Why do I want to become an immigration judge? Well, we can't give away our secrets. Got to hear the whole podcast before we tell you that. That's oh, one know. of our topics. Come on. There so, are so many objective and subjective things as to why you want to become an immigration judge. And we're happy to share them with you. Please do. All right, Judge Jackler, take it away. Thanks, Judge Payton. So who are we as a core? We currently have more than 650 immigration judges on duty. We are composed of every single background from American legal practice that you can imagine. There's not really an emphasis in our ranks of one or the other, but we're private bar attorneys, we're people who have practiced in the nonprofit and public interest. Some of us have uh, previously practiced in courts as magistrates or full judges. Some have been prosecutors or public defenders in the state or the federal system. For instance, we have a lot of former U.S. attorneys government attorneys, and of course, military attorneys and judges. There are many judges across the country from every single service who have been in uniform in some capacity, every service, including the National Guard. So you may be asking yourself, what do I need to do to be able to apply to be an immigration judge? Well, the good news is you probably already have everything if you're listening. You need an advanced degree, which for us is, of course, a JD or an LLB or an LLM, depending on your school. You need an active bar membership and you need seven plus years post-bar admission legal experience. Some candidates do apply with just seven or eight years, and if the credentials are right, then you may be referred through to an interview. But more importantly, what else are we looking for? Eeyore is looking for candidates with a good temperament, somebody to sit and listen to and quickly adjudicate a large docket of immigration cases, removal proceedings, asylum hearings, bond hearings, detained hearings. We need candidates with the appropriate demeanor, we need candidates with good courtroom management skills. We need candidates with skills at conducting proceedings in a courteous, fair, and impartial manner. And a lot of these traits are inherent to judge advocates. Judge advocates are lucky in their career that they often get into court early. And often, those are all skills which would make a very good immigration judge. Sorry, just to add in there that so much of what we're looking for during the hiring process, which both Judge Jacqueline and I are involved with, is we're looking for how you're expressing those subjective components. Everyone can write on their resume, their background, the objective years, their state membership and whatever bar association, but we need to know how can you handle the great weight and responsibility of adjudicating cases as appointed by the attorney general, as well as a stressful docket, challenging circumstances. You're hearing from people that have suffered great tragedy in their life and then are telling you about it under cross-examination. It's very contentious, very challenging circumstance. And we need to know how you can handle that. Are you guys going to talk about the hiring process? If so, I'll wait. If not, this might be a good time to talk about how it goes, unless you're giving away secrets. Uh, no secrets. That is definitely one of the topics. We're going to talk about that a little bit later on right now. I think that Judge Jack is going to share what the immigration judges do. Uh, judge Payton, am I going to talk about a day in the life of the immigration judge, or do you want to talk about that? Well, actually, this is kind of interesting because, so as you noted, ACAJ Jackler started as a higher rank. So she started as a supervisory judge. So she supervises the judges as well as the attorney advisors in the New Orleans court, the second best court in the nation. <laughs> well, I started as an immigration judge. And so I was adjudicating for about five years, like I mentioned before, I started as an ACIJ. So in terms of a day in the life of an immigration judge, your days really vary, which is nice. There is a definite diversity in the cases you're hearing. What I liked about private practice, if I could back up for a second, was in private practice. I liked how my days were different and that one day I would be going to the immigration agency and the second day I'd be working with a client statement. And then next I would go for a hearing in the Executive Office of Immigration Review, which is EOIR, which is the fancy name for our immigration courts. 
and so what I liked was having the diversity of where you're going and who you're litigating and who your audience is before. Here as a judge, what's nice is the diversity of the cases you see. So you probably are familiar with the straightforward, or I guess straightforward is probably not the right term to use, but the more commonly known uh, application for asylum, but there's also less known applications and benefits you get to adjudicate on a daily basis. And really you're holding bench hearings. You are the judge holding bench hearings. There's no jury, it's you. It's responded perhaps with counsel and then also Assistant Chief Counsel who represents the Department of Homeland Security. If I can translate it a little bit into JAG speak, our day in the life is more cases than most of you may have ever tried in your entire career. For instance, a typical day in my judge's life will be they come in at 8 o'clock, they review the docket for the day. At 8.30, they're in court on the bench in the row doing master calendar hearings. Master calendar hearings are arraignments one after the other. Sometimes they take a few minutes with a lawyer where we decide whether the respondent is removable. And if removable, what forms of release from removal, such as asylum, withholding, or protection under the Convention Against Torture? Or perhaps they've been here longer, say more than 10 years, and they are eligible for cancellation of removal. During the master calendar hearing, we read them the charges, we ask how they plead, and we also go through an extensive reading of rights. So those of you who have been in numerous 39A sessions to conduct an arraignment of an accused, these are rapid fire. And also in multiple languages. Predominantly, I think Spanish is the most common language across the country. But in my court, we see a lot of the Guatemalan indigenous languages. We see some Chinese cases and other cases, depending on what immigrants have arrived in the New Orleans jurisdiction. It's rapid fire. It's fascinating. It's diverse. And it's exciting. So that's from 830 to 10. 10 o'clock and 1 o'clock, we conduct individual hearings. So an applicant has already conceded removability, they filed their application for asylum, they've expressed what their fear is of returning to their home country, or uh, described the past persecution for us, they've submitted exhibits, and we conduct a hearing, which, like Judge Payton said, we do a bench trial. The rules of evidence don't apply, so don't feel like you need to keep that guide from your basic lawyer course, because we just follow general evidentiary rules, but you are deciding them. And most importantly, you as the immigration judge are issuing a decision that day often an oral decision. If you see military judges who read an oral decision on a motion to suppress or some other pretrial motion, you are doing that in an asylum case for a respondent from many different countries, often two or three times a day. So again, it's fast-paced, it's diverse, and it's fascinating. It's draining, but it's fascinating. It makes the day go by quickly. I'm going to ask here, so I assume the government's putting on counter evidence that, you know, if they're saying, well, here's my fear I guess it's on the government to provide evidence to say that, well, that's not really the case here. I mean, how do you evaluate the fear or the whatever plea they have as to why they should stay here? Right. The burden for relief for asylum is quite low. But if the government has a vested interest in not granting asylum, the government usually conducts a case through cross-examination. In most of my cases, the government does not offer evidence, so they could. I was just going to add that one thing that we do rely on with great frequency in our courts is the Department of State Country Report, as that does give us an idea of what's happening in home country to form a basis for the decision on asylum or the other forms of relief that are available. And now we'll talk about where, which is my turn. So presently, we have about 70 courts nationwide. You'll hear me use the term a lot, operational needs, because depending on the operational needs, they're opening more courts. Previously, there was only, even just in the last, I don't know, five or six years, there was one court in Los Angeles. And now we have North Los Angeles, Van Nuys, and also a Santa Ana court together with the original Los Angeles court. So we've spun from one to four. 
Similarly, the Houston area has expanded, and now we have three courts in the Houston area, Greens Point, I forget the other ones. I think one is in just plain Houston, and then there's uh, also one opened in Conroe. So it all depends on the operational needs, uh, where the cases are, what the caseload is. Judge Jackley, remind me how many cases you have in New Orleans for your number of judges? We're the 13th busiest court in the country, and each of my judges carry a docket of around 10,000 cases. Yeah, so as I look at this, most of the courts are on the eastern starboard, the west coast, Right. down along the Gulf Coast, Texas, obviously big areas where you see a lot of immigration, New York City, Boston, some yep. up in Canada. But I'm kind of intrigued by the ones in the middle of the country of Salt Lake, right. Denver, Omaha. Is that Fort Snelling? And Fort Snelling, which is Bloomington outside the Twin Cities. Yeah. So obviously there's a need or you wouldn't have them, but how busy are right. those courts? Very busy. Even if you look at Chicago. So our court is right here in downtown Chicago. We cover Indiana, Wisconsin, and Illinois. So while we don't have Judge Jackler's numbers, we have 16 full-time judges. We have about a, a hundred thousand cases and we're getting about a thousand new cases per week. So our operational needs are also greatly expanding. And so when the ads drop on usajobs.gov, which we'll talk about a little later on in this segment, you'll note that it does ask for different locations. Some of the locations aren't presently on the EOIR map because they haven't been opened yet. Hmm. Uh, for example, we're opening new courts in Concord, which is outside of Oakland. We're opening a new court in Indianapolis in 2024. We're moving our Chicago court to a larger space right around the 4th of July, a little after that. And also there's a new court opening outside Boston and Lowell, Massachusetts. So the headquarters is constantly reviewing the ebb and flow of cases to see where they are. And maybe we don't have that many in the Midwest areas. For example, you know, Wyoming and other states like Idaho, someone who has court there might have to travel to Portland or travel to Omaha to have their hearing heard. And of course, together with so many other courts and jurisdictions with the onset of the pandemic, we have really been relying more on use of virtual hearings and technology to make the hearings go a little smoother for those that are far away. And then in terms of the actual buildings where we are, I mean, my office in Chicago is a traditional office building. You would walk by and not know that there's a courthouse inside. It's a standard building. We have a deli downstairs and a parking garage. And on the fifth floor, it's a Chicago immigration court. And then, of course, you have other courts that are in the traditional detention centers. Some of the courts are detention only. For example, one of the New York courts is detention only. A couple in California couple long southern border are only detention centers. We also have started a new process in the last three to four years where they are adjudication centers. Now, adjudication center is different from a court. So like I said, here in Chicago and in New Orleans, we have traditional office buildings, traditional courts. So parties can show up in person, interpreters show up in person, we have staff in person, but they have started to open what's known as adjudication centers where the judge sits in let's say, Richmond, Virginia, or Falls Church, Virginia, or there's one in the Texas, Houston area. And they don't, parties don't come to those courts. So everything from those facilities is virtual. So again, operational needs. If we have a need to have a presence from a judge 
for example, let's say on the southern border, that judge might be sitting in Richmond on Eastern Standard Time, yet hearing cases in the central time zone out of Houston because of the operational needs. And the adjudication centers, it's all remote. It's all WebEx. And then we're able to use our digital audio recording to make sure that everything is captured and maintained for the record. Now, those remote hearings that you were just talking about, adjudication centers, does that allow the shifting of cases around with the ebb and flow? Yeah, a little bit. And sometimes, for example, depending on the influx of respondents or applicants at the southern border or even the northern border, quite frankly, it depends on when you're beaming in from one court to the next, uh, where exactly you're going to be sitting. In terms of the job postings, we do understand that the next job posting for an immigration judge will drop April 10th, 2023, a week from today, and you might see multiple locations in that posting, maybe from all 70 courts. I don't know. That's way above my pay grade, way above Judge Jackler's pay grade. I would just tell you, only apply to postings where you want to live and work. So for those that are former military, there's a one-year probationary period. For civilians, it's two years. After that one year, you can seek reassignment. It's never guaranteed. It's never promised. If you do not want to work in Conroe, Texas, do not apply for that position. You don't want to work in New Orleans, although you should because Judge Lacker is amazing. <laughs> she needs help. <laughs> um, don't apply for the spot. You don't want to live and work because transfers are not guaranteed. And I think that's one thing that uh, the military will prepare you well for. We're, as you know, military veterans and JAGs, very used to the term operational necessity. And it really is whatever is best for your and we have changing needs. Immigrants may move in different areas, depending on jobs, depending on family situations. And I think the court does a really good job of keeping up with that and responding to needs so that we can swiftly adjudicate cases as best as possible. And now I think Judge Shackler will tell us a little bit about why you might want to become an immigration mm. judge. Oh, there are so many reasons. Obviously, the opportunity to be a judge, take the bench, conduct meaningful hearings and do meaningful work is attractive for anybody. But let's talk benefits first. As an immigration judge, your salary is set in accordance with, I think it's the DOJ pay tables. There are four different levels of pay. And depending on your level of experience, you may lead up to the top of that if you're coming in with 20 to 25 years of solid litigation experience. The agency, and I can't vouch for this personally, of course, but the agency may be interested in offering you a higher salary to start. There is no relocation pay, however, let me be clear about that. So for myself, I used my separation move to get my family down here from Virginia Beach. Salary can be up to $195,000 per year, which is the current, I think, max on the federal pay. We also have the federal thrift savings plan. It's a different button that you click in the TSP from your military pay. So you'll have to go through the joy of setting that up. And of course, we have the option to elect health, vision, and dental insurance. That's done through the federal system every fall, as well as a flexible spending account, life insurance, and long-term care. And just noting the different locations also, when you do start as an immigration judge, the locality pay does differ by location, which I believe is something familiar for the military, right? Right. Yeah. Just like you might um, get a higher cost of living if you went to Hawaii exactly. as opposed to uh, Gulfport. <laughs> uh, what I liked about coming to the federal workplace from my private practice was two things I never really thought would happen. And one was that I took all the federal holidays off as an immigration judge. Building was closed. You can't even get to work, so don't bother. 
Oftentimes in private practice, you find that those are good days to catch up, especially with courts being closed. You can get your written submissions ready and your briefs and all that stuff done. So that's nice. Also, what's a subjective benefit that I liked, which was quite unusual, was, you know, leaving work at five and your day was done. No one can email. No one can call you. They aren't pinging you and asking you questions because you're done. You, you know, you leave as much of your work as you can mentally speaking, the mental load at work. And you walk out the door and, and that you're done for the night until you come in the next morning. The work-life balance is frankly one of the best things about this job. There's no command duty officer duty. There's really no collateral duties as an immigration judge. You don't have to worry about planning the next officer social. And some of that stuff is enjoyable, right? But this job, you're focused on being a judge, adjudicating your motions, preparing your cases, hearing your cases, and writing your decisions. And so now I'm going to talk a little bit about how do I apply I hope you're all familiar. I suspect you might be with usajobs.gov. That is your end all and be all as to where to find the application, which I noted is going to drop, we believe, April 10th. If you haven't already played around on that website recently, you might not be aware, but you are able to set up alerts to send you automated notices as to when new jobs are posted. I think it's actually pretty user-friendly as well. So be sure to give it a spin and, and check it out. Uh, in terms of the do's and don'ts and the nitty gritty, I'm sure you all know military time is important and no filing late. If the application is not received, there's no, I'm sorry, teacher, I didn't make it because of my hamster or whatever. They don't care. It's done. The window closes and you're out. Also, the ads pretty much always call for two standard documents. One is, of course, your resume, which reflects those objective components of your bar membership, as well as the seven years of post-bar admission experience. And then you also have a document known as the Quality Ranking Factors, the QRFs. Sometimes the ad will ask for you to include a writing sample. Sometimes it doesn't. If you have prior experience at government, I believe they want you to include your last SF-50. Sometimes it asks if you are a U.S. citizen. Sometimes it asks whether your jobs were part-time or full-time. Whatever the ad calls for, of course, you have to provide that. These are not quick documents to create. The resume, as well as the quality ranking factors, you're trying to express in words what we want to see in those subjective characteristics of the ideal immigration judge. How can you handle a busy caseload? How can you carry this weight and responsibility of adjudicating cases? How can you handle, you know, attorneys that are fighting with each other and the respondent speaks a dialect and there's no interpreter present? How can you handle all those challenges and still maintain justice and do what is right and get your head down and get your job done? So in your submission, we encourage you to spend some quality time looking at those documents because, and we'll go into a little bit about the screening process next. Yeah. So I got a question. This is probably more to the honor Judge Jackler down there in, in New Orleans. So, you know, one of the things that I always kind of fear is submitting a writing sample. And it's not just because I use crayons. It's because... <laughs> red crayons. Red crayons. <laughs> but it's because I've always been a government counsel throughout my career. I've never worn a defense hat. So I've never submitted a motion or, or and any motions I submitted as a prosecutor in my first tour. So I really don't own that document that I would be able to submit a, a writing sample for. I'm sure this is not something that you had to worry about, but it does bring up 
one of the challenges that maybe judge advocates have who have served as JSAs throughout their career and trying to get permission to use that document? Yeah, I will just say that as judge advocates, we all were trained to write quickly and write well under pressure. Like you said, you may have a piece of good writing, an executive summary memo from something. Probably don't want to send us a top secret memo, obviously, <laughs> right. but there's there's always something from somebody somewhere. We get a wide variety. It doesn't have to be a litigation piece of writing. It doesn't have to be a motion. It doesn't have to be a decision if you served as an Article 32 hearing officer. I'm sure that's great, but we just want to see that you can put a coherent thought together and that you write commensurate with your experience. My recommendation also would be to get permission from whomever was the intended audience of that and certainly redact it if needed. Yeah, the one that I think that I would use, and I probably should set it in motion, would be when I was at Navy Personnel Command and we had a uh, guy who was a conscientious objector. He had filed suit against the Navy and, you know, we finally get it and you review it and there was a couple guys who investigated saying, well, yeah, we think he's sincere in his beliefs, but... We don't think it's been long enough. It's like, well, guys, you know, that right there, you've just lost the case if you want to defend it. So let's just let him go. So I wrote like a seven page memo that said, hey, here's the reasons why we just need to let this guy go. Anyway, that's just a thought that came up when you were mentioning about the writing sample. Sure. And I'll just say briefly, it sounds like in that conscientious objector situation, you found some facts, you found some law, you applied the facts to the law and you made a recommendation. And that's exactly what we're looking for because that's what an immigration judge will do multiple times a day. Oh, great. Look at that practical example. You're almost on the way, right? So, (laughs) (laughs) all right. So when you hit send next week, first thing, of course, is you get an acknowledgement email from usajobs.gov. The first screening is done by a computer. It's done by the administrative staff to make sure that you've met those objective requirements, whatever documents you're required to submit, you have. If you don't submit them, too bad, so sad, you can try next time. Those initial applicants, once they have been screened for the objective components, they are reviewed by a panel of assistant chief immigration judges like myself and Judge Jackler. We review the quality ranking factors, the resumes, writing samples if they're required, and we make our own recommendations as to whom uh, first interviews should be offered. So the strong candidates are given the first round of interviews. Up until now, we have been doing these virtually. With this April 10th ad, we are going to start to bring back an in-person component. So what we anticipate is that the strong candidates invited to their first round interviews will appear at an immigration court. A ACIJ will be in person. There will be one on a video teleconferencing system. And again, we're doing this to really test those subjective components. We want to know who are you, what is your presence, what weight do you bring, and just get a chance to know you. Those interviews last maybe 30, 45 minutes. After the interviews, the ACIJs will make their recommendations. After those recommendations are sent, the stronger candidates get a second round interview very similar to the first, a little different panel. There'll be one ACIJ and probably two people from higher up in the Department of Justice, also a in-person and a virtual component. And that probably is going to be within a month or so after the first round of interviews. We are trying to get these done in a more timely manner. I don't know what happened with Judge Jackler, but I do tell you when I applied, again, as a civilian, never had government service, 
it took me two years from hitting send to when I started on duty. So it was September 4th, 2014, September 4th, 2016 to the day. And here I am, but it took two years and that was a long two years. So mine was much, much quicker. I applied January 6th, 2021. And I remember because I was finalizing my application as I watched the attack on the Capitol. I got the offer in April and I took office on June 21st. So mine was very quick. But yeah, so six I, months. Yeah. Obviously, yeah, I had my Navy security background and I also right. keep crazy amounts of paperwork. So I was able to quickly respond to everything they needed, including reporting to a direct test, which, of course, Navy judge advocates are used to or any judge advocate is used to. Yeah, that's great to hear, because, I mean, obviously, if you're getting out or you're retiring, wow, you know, a two year uh, right. sojourn into getting there, that's that would create a little bit of anxiety. So right. glad to hear that it's not all over the area like that. Right. And I think that's the old standard, quite frankly. We're seeing lots of private attorneys coming in. Uh, of the, in the Chicago court, we have five recently onboarded. And I think the most has been maybe six to nine months. So it's been nice that they have actually speeded some things up. And part of the process is what you're all familiar with. There's a preliminary background check. They look at references, your taxes. They you know, you do the FBI reports and then they go talk to your neighbors. Uh, once you complete that background screen, it'll be submitted to the deputy attorney general, the DAG. Once the DAG reviews, if your application is then processed to the attorney general, and if the attorney general signs off, then you're going to be given a firm offer. The only other thing I can say other than please don't apply for cities you don't want to live is that we can't talk anything about locations. We know nothing about them. Any location questions are directed to headquarters. Once you are given your firm offer, that's when you're given your, your confirmation of your duty location. And also your enter on duty or your EOD date is provided. I don't think this will apply to many of your listeners, but if there are attorneys who were private bar, then they need to make sure that when they enter on duty, they do not appear as attorney of record for any case in any court on the day they onboard. That's extremely important. So uh, just make sure. And also what's nice is that if you do have experience in the private bar as an immigration attorney, for example, you can work with the court administrator and the ACIJ in your onboarding court to run reports based on your identifying name for your case identifier. And they can see how many cases you still have uh, where you might need to file motions to withdraw, motions to substitute. And I do have some good news for you who have submitted your resignation and you're close to terminal leave, you can onboard during terminal leave, which means you still technically belong to the military. Maybe you're spending your days of leave, you know, setting up your new house, but you can onboard. You do not have to wait until you get your DD-214. So after the good news happens, of course, maybe you have gotten through the interviews and you have not heard anything. So our agency only notifies individuals who are selected. We don't make those sad, sad phone calls of non-selection. The number of selectees, again, depends on the anticipated number of vacancies at each location. We also, we as in the agency, are trying to maintain a qualified list of candidates. So, for example, right now in Chicago, we have 16 full-time judges. When we move, we will have 15 courtrooms. For all I know, we have a couple of judges that might be thinking about retiring or transferring. So right now, while I might seem in quotes full, or as I call oversubscribed, um, <laughs> that might change in the next few months. So they are having people go through these processes to keep the active list 
of judge candidates who might be able to onboard as the ebb and flow of, of the operational needs. Also, we would encourage you if you are not selected to keep applying again. We do run these ads with some frequency. As I said, we have this one in April. I think the last one was maybe even in January. I don't think it was that long ago. But yeah, so that's kind of our spiel on the who, what, where, why, and then I guess the hows, the four W's and the H. Do you have any questions, Captain Welch, or anything else you can think of? I do a couple questions. So you have about 650 attorneys. What on average, if you know, is the turnover rate of judges in any given year? That's a really good question. And I don't think I know the answer. So when I joined in 2016, there had not been an ad out for several years. So we had a lot of very experienced judges who from 2016 to 2018, 2020 were retiring because if you can, why wouldn't you, right? Right. So we have a younger judicial core than we did before just due to those transitions. But at the same time, we have judges with military experience and 30-year careers. I mean, of the five that joined Chicago, I have one that I retired as a Cook County Public Defender Chief of the Homicide Division. Hmm. So tons of experience. And then he comes in here. He's a, he, I call him the master of evidence. And I'm also like, we don't have evidence in this court. <laughs> All the experience you had, throw it out the window. Here's my trash can. Put it in there. We don't need it. This is administrative hearings. So he's, he's okay, great okay, for okay. that. But I'm like, we don't need to worry about that. So. <laughs> Have you guys seen a dramatic increase in cases over the last couple of years uh, with all the news of increased immigration to the country? So I, I think the quick answer is yes. So right now, I, Chicago is receiving about a thousand. So our charging documents called a notice to appear. And Chicago is receiving about a thousand notices to appear per week. So if I had each of my judges, all 16, only hearing initial hearings for those thousand cases, I could not get through them all. That was the only thing they did. So right now we're unfortunately having to set some out because we just don't have capacity. And Judge Harry T. Stone is dead. (laughs) Night court. Right, right, right. But his his daughter's on the bench (laughs) in that new TV show. I would only add that we are at a close rate to Chicago. New Orleans is adding maybe seven to 900 notices to appear every single week. And one thing I'll offer, uh, thinking back about my military experience, I was a prosecutor in Norfolk in 2012 when Secretary Panetta watched the Invisible War and changed how the military handled sex assault cases. And back then, I remember my caseload reviewing 120s absolutely exploded. I had a docket of maybe nine cases and then it went to 30. And that was a lot for a young lieutenant like me. Not so here in immigration law. Our work is heavy, but steady, I would say. I'm never going to change my judge's dockets because they're very, very full. New Orleans is booked out. Every judge, every courtroom, every square inch of space for the next several years. We just have a constant workflow, but it is steady. It's not an up and down like you might see on a deployment or um, another operational setting. It's pretty much eight to 4.30 every day, same type of cases, same type of caseload. Now you mentioned retirement. Is it the same kind of federal retirement that you can do a, a minimum amount of years to retire? And obviously if the longer you stay, the better the retirement is? Yeah, I can take that. I attended the retirement briefs as soon as I got in, obviously, because I had just turned 40 and was thinking of ahead for the next 25 years, how to take good care of my family. And we can offer, DOJ offers a retirement at 10 years, at 20 years, at 25 years, or then after that, depending on, you know, how many years of service you elect. 
we do have some judges that are well into their 70s and 80s who are still on right. the bench. If I can just add one more quick thing, one thing about the military, obviously, if you're retired, you're starting at a new job. But somebody like me with 12 years of active experience could ask to buy back my years. So if I pay a certain amount of my uh, salary through the Navy, through what I got from DOD over 12 years, I think it's 3% of my total earnings, I can actually apply those 12 years of Navy service to my DOJ retirement. So for instance, if I retire at 25 years, I can tack on the other 12 and get a payout commensurate with 37 years of federal service. I remember 40 years of age. That was a long time ago. <laughs> it was a couple of years ago for me now too. <laughs> so if, if someone's out there and has more questions, is there somewhere they can go? Is there a website or is there a recruiting office, anything like that that they can speak to somebody? Right. So not only the usajobs.gov has information in the job announcement and a contact person, also our website, which is at the Department of Justice under EOIR, I believe it's slash adjudicators. You can find more information there about the immigration judge role. And I believe you can similarly sign up for alerts and emails on that website as well as usajobs.gov. I think that's all the questions I have. And again, I had not spoken to anyone about administrative law judges. I know that immigration is one set of that. And you guys have forget, provided a pretty comprehensive overview of that. So thanks for taking the time to talk to me. And thanks for waiting on me. Of course. Well, thank you so much for having us. We are thrilled to be able to talk about being an immigration judge. I thought I had the best job in the world in private practice, and I thought, what what I, had, what I have to lose to apply to be an immigration judge? And I love my role as an immigration judge, and even now I love my role as, as an ACIJ. Yes, I really, I think it's the best transition from active duty Navy, and I think it's the best job in the world to impact people's lives and do interesting work and learn something every day and work with right. a great team. Right. So, Captain Welsh, thank you so much for having us, and uh, best of luck in your own plans, too. Yes, and your upcoming travel. Yeah, be safe. (laughs) Thanks a lot. All right, take care. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you like this podcast, be sure to subscribe and tell your friends. After the Jag Corps is a TJW 50 Associates LLC production.